I read comics, show number 39. As a cold front sweeps in, you can expect showers in Spokane. Showers in Spokane. Spokane. Temperatures are up there, and it's hot in Topeka. It's hot in Topeka. It's hot. Hot, hot. Hot, hot, hot. Hot. Hot, 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 hot. In Topeka. Toe-picker. I'm a toe-pick. I'm a hot toe-picker. Pick my toe, it's hot. Pick my hot toe-pick it. Topeka's hot. My toe is hot. Pick it. It's hot in Topeka. It's hot. It's hot. It's hot. It's hot and it's hot and it's hot in Topeka. Topeka. If you're not watching Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends... You really should be. That little clip is from a recent episode called Squeeze the Day, in which Blue, my favorite character, is left alone in the house, and he has nothing to do, so he ends up watching the Weather Channel and obsessing on the words. And there's a clip of that on YouTube, which I'll link to, just that little scene. And I have probably watched it 25 times already. I don't know why I think it's so funny, but I think it's hysterical. And I go around saying, hot in Topeka all the time. So, go watch Foster's. It's the funniest thing on TV right now. It really is. Um, Okay, so I have a whole bunch of stuff to talk about, and I wanted to get some um, sort of administrative stuff out of the way first. The, The first thing is that there is a column, a new column, over at Pop Syndicate by a guy named Chris Williams, and his column's called Nerd Alert. And he decided for one of his first columns to list his top five podcasts. And I was really happy that I got listed in the top five. And also that Birds of Geek got listed in the top five. So two out of five women comics podcasts. Yay, go. I'm really, really happy about that. And Chris had some really nice things to say about the show, too. So I was thrilled. And I think his column is going to be extremely interesting. And there might be some contributions from me coming up in future columns. So go read that. Um, The other thing I wanted to mention is that I have a MySpace account that I don't really use very much. But I add people who ask to be friended. And um, I, I like to be other people's friends, too. The thing is, I get a lot of requests, and the ones that come from um, um, webcam hotties, you know, I just delete those because obviously they're not meant for me. But then I get like three or four from people named Chris and Matt, and really, I have no idea who that could be. I know a lot of people named Chris. I know guys named Chris, and I know women named Chris. So unless I know who you are, like I know what you look like, like the Chris who sent me, an invitation, and yeah, I knew it was you, Tickfaw, because I know what you look like. That's great, but if you just send me something, and I don't know who you are, I'm not going to friend you, because I don't just friend anybody who asks. So send me an email, or send me a PM through MySpace to say, hi, I listen to your show, and I'd love to be added as your friend, because then I'll do it. But if you're just some random person, I'm, I'm not going to know who you are unless you tell me. And most people with their MySpace accounts don't 
tend to put a lot of information. So you might be somebody who sent me mail in the past and I just don't know it's you. So just let me know that it's you because I want to know. So that's the MySpace thing. Um, this this is slightly off topic, but I, I wanted to just mention it up front, you know, um, in my, my daily blog reading and all the other things. I keep seeing um, different people referring to the percentages of women who read comics and who have read comics over the years. And it ranges from zero, which we know is incorrect, because I'm reading them, so I count, and there are lots of women reading them. Um, to a tiny sliver, and I don't know what that means, but I've seen that phrase used a lot, to um, a very small minority, to somewhere, and I should probably try to dig this up, 30%, which is not bad, a third. That's pretty good. Um, I get the feeling that all of these numbers, and they're not numbers, obviously, but these estimations of the amount of women um, who read comics um, are, as, as we say in the marketing industry, in technical jargon, pulled out of someone's ass. <laughs> Nobody knows, right? Is that true? Nobody really knows. So I would like to propose, and I don't know how this is going to get done, that somebody actually field a study to find out what the percentages are. I mean, couldn't DC or Marvel look at their subscription lists and maybe based on um, first name kind of just do a quick rough sort to find out? And I know that would only be for people who order them and, and who buy them direct, but that would help. Um, you could do studies. I, I think you could get down to it and find out what these numbers. Now, I know that just looking at subscription lists or even people who come into comic book stores and buy them doesn't count the pass-along. And I suspect that the pass-along for comic books is huge. I know it's really huge for um Magazines like People, uh, studies have actually been done about that to find out what the percentage is. And even things like, you know, the National Enquirer, which tend to get bought and passed around to lots of different people. But, you know, we need numbers. We need some science. We need somebody to figure out what the actual percentages are because that would shut up the people who say, A, that women don't read comics, and B, that only a tiny sliver of the readership of comic books is women. Because I don't think, really, it's a tiny sliver. I actually think it's pretty sizable. Um, percentage. I don't think it's near half, but I think it's more than 2%. I really do. And I'd love to know the truth. So come on, we're smart. We can figure out how to do this. I know somebody's got to pay for it, but let's, let's figure out how to make this happen. Okay. Um, let's see. Well, there's, as you probably know, if you're on the internets, the interwebs, um, the wizard thing, Hilarious. So uh, someone had posted, uh, and I'll link to this as well, some scans from the Wizard How to Draw series. And um, this is the How to Draw Heroic Anatomy. And it's horrible. You know, it's just ridiculous that the men are totally drawn muscular. And in the women's drawings, it's pretty much about the tits and the lips. Uh, and not much else really, you know, butts, but mostly tits and lips and eyes. Oh, sorry. I forgot about the eyes. Um, and a whole chapter about drawing sultry women, you know, and the sultry eye, which is pretty much looking directly at the reader going, fuck me, fuck me right now. Cause that's important. Uh, oh, and lipstick, you know, really important lipstick and the hair and, you know, 
they don't go into the whole twisted spine thing saying how important it is to draw women in anatomically impossible positions so they look like their spines are snapping in half. But I think it's pretty obvious that that's what they mean. And um, what's really creepy about this, as I'm looking through it, you know, they had these different artists, um, Michael Turner, yeah, Michael Turner, um, do these different chapters. And when you read Michael chapters, Michael Turner's chapter on sex appeal, what you're looking at are his fantasies. And I am really uncomfortable <laughs> looking at an artist's personal fantasies about the women he wants to fuck as um, art instruction. That's creepy, man. That is really pretty creepy. And uh, yeah, the, his women all look exactly the same. And they have, you know, the artificial eyes and the giant lips and the no noses. What is it about the noses? Why aren't women allowed to have noses anymore? They really pretty much just have two little um, comma, no, apostrophes for nostrils. And that's it. They don't really have noses anymore. I, I think that's bizarre. Um, they're just... It's really bad. So, yeah, everybody agrees that this sucks. And superheroic women, of course, have to have legs like pipe cleaners and pointed toes all the time. So that aside, I mean, it's just awful and imbecilic and and ridiculous and creepy. Um, But the responses to it have been so fucking funny. So over on the girlwonder.org forums, there have been lots of people who have taken the challenge up of drawing males in the... uh, poses that are supposed to be female poses um, and putting the emphasis on them. And the results are just side-splittingly funny. And boy, wouldn't it be great if you could actually see comics that looked like that? Um, I'll have to link especially to one picture of uh, Green Arrow, who's kind of down on all fours with his ass up in the air and an arrow between his teeth. It's just wonderful. So I'm totally all for the gender swap stuff. I think it's good. And also noting the comments about the artist saying how hard it was to try to draw men in those poses because you're just not used to it. It's so deeply conditioned that it's okay to to draw women with um, rubber spines, but men shouldn't be drawn that way. So I thought a lot about this, and um, I think part of the problem with a lot of artists who are published in comic books nowadays is that they've never actually taken art lessons, or if they have, they've never taken life art lessons, that is, drawing real people. So what they've done is base their art on what they've seen before, or in the case of women, on porn, or on swimsuit models. And that's clearly the case for Greg Land, who doesn't even draw anymore. He just takes porn stills and traces them. Um, So I think, you know, if you're going to be an artist, maybe you should aim a little higher than that. Maybe you should try. And I think there are some really easy ways to figure out how to draw women accurately. Uh, There's a whole other talk about how to draw men more accurately, but somebody else can do that. So how to draw women more accurately as superheroes or just as characters? Well, there are women in the world, so you could observe them. But for superhero women, how about watching the sports channel? Okay, it probably won't cost you nothing because you get the sports channel. So kick back, watch a game of women's basketball. Watch women's volleyball. Watch women's tennis. Watch pretty much any women's sport that involves actual athletic competition. You know, golf isn't going to help you all that much. Look at the women archers when when you see the Olympics. Look at how they move. Look at how they're built. Look at how their body weight is distributed. Look at how they stand. Look at how they hold themselves. Note that they're not wearing high heels. Note that they don't cock one hip forward when they're standing there 
waiting for the action to start again on a game. Note that they're not tossing their hair back. Um, Note that they don't have giant inflatable breasts that aren't supported by anything. Look at those things. It don't cost nothing. Watch women's sports on TV. Wouldn't it be fan-fucking-tastic if there was a comic book in which Venus and Serena Williams were superheroes dressed the way they do when they're playing tennis? Wouldn't that be the most awesome thing ever to see them drawn the way they really look, kicking ass all over the place? What about the WNBA? Wouldn't it be great to see them as superheroes? You know, those women are strong. They're big. They're powerful. They would kick anybody's ass. I want to see them as superheroes. I want them to be superhero women drawn in real costumes and not thongs and metal breastplates. That's what I want. Those women right there. Somebody, please do it. Please, please, please. I do it myself, but I can't draw. So those are my responses there. Now, um, the rest of the show is going to be devoted to to kicking ass in a lot of ways because I found some really good kick-ass stuff this week. And and it kind of got the whole ball rolling by thinking about women like Serena Williams and Venus Williams and the WNBA women um, kicking ass because they do kick lots and lots of ass. So there will be metaphorical ass-kicking and actual real ass-kicking in the review section coming right up. started with something a little bit silly, um, which kicks ass in its own way. This is um, a Legion story, so I'm still deeply into my Legion obsession. And this is from um, the Legion Archives volume, volume 9. And uh, volume 9 is pretty much where I start to lose a little bit of interest because way too many of these stories are all relationship stuff, which I'm really bored with. But this one is a weird, weird story. Um, It's called The Legionnaires Who Never Were, Action Comics number 392, September 1970. Carrie Bates was the writer and Wynne Mortimer was the penciler. Um, I'm not really fond of the way that Wynne Mortimer drew the Legion, and I'm going to have a little post on that coming up. But suffice to say, I'm just not, I don't really like his style. It looks like a bad version of Neil Adams for some reason, and all his women look like they belong in romance comics. Be that as it may. This story is weird. I know Legion stories are always weird, but this is a little bit weirder than most. It The plot centers on Saturn Girl and Princess Projectra, who something happens, there's some plot stuff, and um, when they come back to the Legion, the Legion claims that they're imposters, that they've never existed, and they want to imprison them. And as part of this is going on, um, the Legion tries to convince them that in this version of the Legion... There's Saturn Lad and Prince Projector. And guess what? They're dressed in the same costumes. Now, the really interesting thing about this is, in this particular issue, Saturn Girl got a new costume. And if you are familiar with uh, Legion history, um, this particular costume was the thigh-high red boots and the sort of Bond Girl-looking outfit that 
went around her neck and uh, looked like a bathing suit, really. And the gap in the middle had the, the little um, Saturn disc holding it together. And it's red. So this was her new sexy outfit. And Saturn Lad is wearing the same thing. Thigh-high boots and everything. And Prince Projector has um, Princess Projector's costume on. And he's got the opera gloves that go all the way up, too. It's so funny to see them wearing these costumes. I also happen to think it's really cool. Um, there's, you know, there's plot that explains what happens, and they're not, you know, it turns out they're Legionnaires dressed up like that. It doesn't matter. But just seeing a comic book from 1970 with male Legionnaires dressed exactly in the women's costumes is just kick-ass. It's so funny. Now, the thing of it is, I don't understand why they published this story. You know, the plot is just, it's ridiculous. Somebody wanted to see these guys dressed in women's costumes, and I don't know who it was. Carrie Bates, are you raising your hand here? I don't know. But I've scanned a couple panels from it, and I think that you should go take a look just to see what that might look like. And it kind of fits in with the whole gender swap thing that's been going on um, because of the, the wizard scans. So go take a look. But man, that cracks me up. Look at them. Look at them wearing it. Thigh high boots. Hee hee hee. It's great. And no high heels either. They're all flat footed, men and women both, which is great. Okay, so getting on to more Legion crack. Here's a great story that I've wanted to talk about for a while. And um, this is another one of the Saturn Girl being the hero stories, which I absolutely love. So this is from the Legion Archives, Volume 1. And, um, oh, that's right, Volume 1 um, doesn't have the publication dates for all of these stories because the people who put it together did a bad job. So this is a story called The Stolen Superpowers, and it's it's from very early on in um, the Legion run. And the art is by Kurt Swan, and I'm not sure who wrote it, but I'll find out, and I'll, I'll put that in the blog. So what happens? Um, I'm going to give away the plot because, you know, you probably don't need to have it not spoiled for you. Um, Saturn Girl, who is in charge of everything, as we know, um, gets to the clubhouse early one morning. I'm probably the first to arrive, she says. And a little capsule comes down, and it has a secret message in it. And she reads it, and it's a prophecy that the Legion, or at least one of the Legion members, will take on a bad guy, and that Legionnaire will die. So Saturn Girl, being Saturn Girl, destroys it before anybody else can see it and spends a whole bunch of time getting herself elected to um, head of the Legion. She's uh, the new leader, it says. And she then um, uses science to get all the powers of all the other Legionnaires. And she does it in a couple of ways. Um, she makes these medallions that they have to wear, which will transfer their powers to her. And she finds reasons to ground them and keep them from going on missions. Um, and she's pretty bitchy about it, which is pretty much okay with me. So she does all that. And then, um, she grounds them all and she does this so that she's the only one who can answer the emergency call when it comes time to fight the bad guy. So she has deliberately disempowered all the other legionnaires so that she can sacrifice herself to save everybody else which is pretty cool and she doesn't tell anybody about this her plan is actually foiled because monel superboy's boyfriend um clues lightning lad in and lightning lad ends up getting killed in her stead and that started the whole 
um, plot thread about his twin sister who turned into Light Lass and Lightning Land came back from the dead, which is a whole nother creepy story that I'm going to talk about um, <laughs> in a future show. Um, but I was like, I was very impressed with the story. I remember reading it as a kid and reading it now. It's still really good. And the way it's done, of course, is that you don't find out till the end that she makes this sacrifice. You just think she's uh, being psychotic for the whole comic as she's grabbing everybody's powers and saying, um, I've got them where I want them. They've got to obey me and stealing their powers and everything. So I, I just think this is a great story. And once again, showing Saturn girl being sort of the de facto leader of the group, being really smart, using science, being self-sacrificing, really altruistic and making sure that nobody else gets hurt because, you know, she thinks that this is the right thing to do. There's no glory that comes from it. She doesn't want anybody to know about it. So she just goes ahead, pretty much kicks all their asses and does it. And is very, very, very upset. So that's a great story. I just, I really, really love that story. And it was good because it, you know, it led to these very other, um, other interesting story arcs. Okay. So I love that story. Yay, Saturn girl kicking ass. Now, I got something else here. This is a JLA uh, trade called League of One, and it's by a guy named Christopher Muller, who I have no idea who he is. This was published in 2000, and um, I I really don't know much about this, except that this was in the big David Arroyo slush pile, so I picked it up because it was Wonder Woman, and I really wanted to see it. Um, Christopher Muller did the writing and the art, both. And the art is beautiful. It's really, really gorgeous. Um, It sort of reminds me a bit of um, the stuff that's in the current Conan that I've been raving about that I love so much, the Carrie Nord stuff. Um, It it looks very um, painterly in some ways. And I like the way he's drawn the superheroes, the JLA here. They're really interesting. Superman looks pretty different from the way I expect to see him. And I like the way he's drawn Wonder Woman here. Um, There are parts where... She doesn't look muscular enough for me, but that's okay. And there are other parts where she looks absolutely great. So here's the plot of this one. Wonder Woman gets a prophecy from the Oracle at Delphi that the JLA has to fight a bad guy. And whoever fights the bad guy will die. And then she spends the rest of the issues pretty much disempowering the JLA so that she will be the one to fight the bad guy and sacrifice herself. Does this sound familiar? (laughs) This really made me laugh because it was a pure coincidence that I picked this up just when I was reading that Legion story. But I think that's amazing. It's the same plot. Almost exactly the same plot. Um, And the really cool thing about this book, and here's where the big kick-ass comes in, is that Wonder Woman kicks the JLA's ass. Every single one of them. And it's not very hard for her to do it either. So um, Martian Manhunter, she causes him to change shape. She imprisons him. Kyle, oh man, he's such a sap. All she has to do is um, steal his ring, which she just kind of puts her hand on his and takes it. And then she knocks him unconscious by slamming her forehead into his. And he passes out. (laughs) Like, whoops, just like that. Um, with the flash, she kind of trips him and knocks him unconscious by kicking him in the head. Batman, she actually has kind of a big old fight with him up on the station, and it doesn't really take her very long to overcome him. Uh, there's a great shot 
shot. There's a great drawing of her that I've scanned to put in here where he's throwing batarangs at her and she's um, defending herself and her arm looks just so cool and muscular. She just looks really good. Um, And the way she defeats Batman in the end is she throws a giant chunk of marble at his head and then she punches him. Punches him in the gut, punches him in the face, knocks him out. She just kicks Batman's ass, just like that. Now, then she has to deal with Superman. So, um, she ends up taking the other JLAs and uh, sending them out in these little space capsules that don't have a lot of air. And the point is that Superman will have to go and rescue them. So, she knows she can't actually defeat him, but she has set up a task that he has to do. Uh, But she ends up fighting with him first. And... What I, I really like about this fight sequence, it's really well drawn, is that mostly she kicks him. Now, this is something that I learned by taking self-defense classes, is that you know women are really stronger in their legs because of the way women's bodies are built. So if you're going to try to disable someone, kicking them is really good. Women's legs are much stronger than their arms. There's a lot more power in the legs. So she ends up kicking him in the head <laughs> uh, twice. And it doesn't knock him out or anything, but it certainly puts him down for the count for a little bit. And uh, she punches him, which is pretty cool. And he punches her, too. So they're really having this kind of knockdown, drag-out barroom brawl. And eventually she sort of explains what's happening. And he has to go off and save the other guys. And then she goes and faces the bad guy. Now, the bad guy in the story is a dragon, um, which is kind of cool. And it's sort of an old-worldy type of dragon. Um... And it's setting parts of Austria on fire. There's some stuff in here that was a little bit disturbing. There's some comedy that goes on with the the slaves of the dragon that I thought was, like, not really appropriate here. They seem like characters out of a Mel Brooks movie or something, um, which is a little strange. And then there's some very disturbing scenes when the dragon um, is awoken from a long sleep and comes to the village and sort of the evilness of the dragon starts spreading through the human population and they start being really mean to each other and getting into fights. And there's a pretty, not graphic, but um, a scene where there's an old woman who's kind of crawling down the street because she's been injured and these uh, men are like kicking her in the head. It's like, yeah, that's, that's pretty strong stuff. I mean, really kicking her in the head. Here's a scene. He says, this will shut you up. And this other man, as he's kicking her, says, pig, filthy pig. So it's pretty weird. Um, There's a little cameo appearance by Poison Ivy in here that I totally didn't understand. Um, She's trying to uh, get people out of South America where the Amazon flows by making water hyacinths bloom in the Amazon River, which will then cause a flood. And I don't know anything about her, so I don't know if that's true to her character or what. Um, And there's a really pretty bad drawing of, of the Flash handcuffing her in the middle of the Amazon to a tree. And, you know, I'm looking at the Flash and kind of wondering where he got those handcuffs from. He actually says cuff. Now, all I've got to do is cuff you, radio the authorities in Manaus, and figure out how to get rid of a million mutant lily pads. And she's wearing a costume that doesn't fit her very well. Her tits are sort of falling out of it right here. Um, But in general, I, I just love the art, and I like the way Wonder Woman is drawn. You know, she's sort of slender, and her breasts are pretty big, but they're not giant inflatable tits and her costume seems to fit pretty well. There's one big complaint that I have about this, which is in the climactic battle between Diana, Wonder Woman, and the dragon, there's a scene where the dragon kind of blasts her um, point blank with dragon flame and she survives it because she's Wonder Woman. 
And then the back cover of this is actually the illustration, and I've scanned this in as well, where she's kind of rising from the flames. So the one thing is that um, her legs are in the wrong position. Um, it's impossible for a person to stand like this without having a broken leg. Her legs are kind of put together, and of course one leg is sort of cocked to one side, and it just doesn't make any sense. It also doesn't make any sense that she would be posed like this after having come through dragon fire. And, you know, the... The drawings of her being blasted and then kind of resisting it look great, but then she's in this really passive pose, which I hate. The other thing about it is that um, she looks like the love child of Courtney Cox and Demi Moore. It was like he took two photographs of those two women and, and kind of mashed them together to get her face. And it's bizarre because she doesn't really look like this throughout most of the rest of the book. She looks more like I would expect Wonder Woman to look. And in this one drawing, she really, really looks like Courtney Cox, as if he traced it or was doing it from a photograph. And that was really disappointing. So for me, this one-page spread, which was supposed to be her giant powerful moment, is completely undercut by the fact that she looks like Courtney Cox, who I don't like. Um, and is posed really passively. Um, so not to give too much away, she defeats the dragon, um, and she doesn't die. Hey, there's a surprise. Did you really think she was going to die? They are still making Wonder Woman comics, aren't they? It reminded me a little bit of, uh, you know, Star Trek Voyager, where in almost every episode for at least the first season, there was this constant, uh, tease that they were going to get the Enterprise, uh, the Voyager back to... Um, the Alpha Quadrant in that episode. No, they're not. <laughs> because then the series would be over. So they're not going to kill off Wonder Woman. I really didn't think she was going to die here. Really, honestly. But uh, unlike the Legion story, nobody else died either, except all the innocent people who lived in the village. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of too bad for them. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> nobody died. And there's a kiss between Wonder Woman and Superman here at the end. I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. Um, and then there's a lot of angsty stuff at the end about how she betrayed the other JLA members. But, uh, you know, the Legion didn't really seem to have a problem with that. So I don't think the JLA should have a problem with that either. So there we go. Wonder Woman kicking ass. Kicking the ass of a dragon. Kicking the ass of everybody else in the JLA. That's pretty cool. Um, another smaller kick-ass thing is that I just got the new issue of Zoe's Blues, which is um, a little indie comic that I had talked about before, which has uh, a really wonderful little storyline by um, Rosa Colon and Carla Rodriguez, and it's published in Puerto Rico, but it's in English. And it's about a girl who uh, named Zoe, who is born into a family of superheroes, but doesn't really want to be a superhero. And um, the cool thing about this one, so issue one was the introduction, and this kind of continues, and Zoe has a little love interest, a cute guy, and we find out a little more about her conflict with her parents, um, that Zoe, in this one, kind of kicks her own ass and uh, does something really brave that she never did before, which is that she go out, she goes out at night alone, which she's never done before, which I find really interesting, and I can't wait to find out why that's true. And she goes and, and does something at an open mic. Um, and we don't know what that is either, but we're going to find out, I think, after she gets done talking, she says, I can't believe I did that. I wish my parents were here. And I really can't wait to find out what she said and what's going to happen next. Um, so this comic, you probably will have a hard time finding at your local shop, although 
I'm pretty sure they've got it at Comic Relief now because I just brought a bunch over there to give to Rory. But I will put in the link again so you could order it directly from Rosa if you want to. But I really love Zoe's Blues. This is a great, great little comic. And it says that number three is coming out in December 2006. The, the blurb says, Something has happened to Zoe. It's a trip down memory lane as her parents remember their youth while searching for Zoe. But what will their memories reveal? Oh, and there's a little bad guy in here who we see right at the very end, and I think that might, might be what happens to her. So, yeah, he's a very cartoony-looking bad guy, but he's clearly a bad guy. So that was pretty kick-ass also. Um, here's something else that kind of kicked my ass. Um, and I had seen this in Salon, and I bought it. This is the 9-11 Report, a graphic adaptation by um, Sid Jacobson and Ernie Kalan, no relation. And this is the graphic novel version of the 9-11 Report, uh, as it says right here, based upon the final report of the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States. This is a pretty amazing thing, and I might want to talk about it later on, because um, I've just gotten through reading it. I don't feel like I've completely digested it yet. It's really affecting to read it, and I think it does an excellent job of explaining the events that led up to that day and what was what happened afterwards and why it happened in a very real sense. What were the breakdowns in communication? What were the breakdowns in airport security? How did, did these guys make this happen? Um, I, I was really... Uh, the part that really kicked my ass is right at the front where they go through the events sort of minute by minute of what happened that day. And um, the pages for that section are, are black background, and it is really, really affecting. I mean, I, I wasn't on the East Coast, and I feel really lucky that I didn't know anybody who, who was killed that day. But it scared the shit out of me. And, uh, it, you know, I was in New York recently, and I really did not want to go down there. It still kind of shocks me to look down um, one of the avenues and not see anything at the tip of Manhattan. And I, I just... It's too painful, you know, as a, as a, somebody from the East Coast, it's really hard for me, and, and reading this is really, really hard, but I think it's important, and I think it's an important book um, to, to make something so complex as the 9-11 report be digestible like this, to take so many complicated threads and draw them together in a way that you can really understand. I highly recommend this book. It's uh, It was 16.95, and I bought it at Borders because I was just happened to be there one night. But I think it's great. Now, a lot of it, I think almost all of it actually, is actually available online at Salon. So if you don't have the money, you can grab the PDFs and just read it. So if you can't afford to buy it, I'll, I'll find the link at Salon. Um, go and download it and read it. But it, it's important. It's not just good. It's really, really important. And I think people need to read that. So that was what kind of kicked my ass this week. So uh, let me take another quick little break, and then I've got one more thing to talk about before we close.
Okay. Last thing, or last two things, actually. Um, the first thing is, I've been trying really, really hard to read the Grant Morrison stuff for New X-Men, the, the trades, because um, David gave them to me. And boy, I feel so old because I just don't get it. I really just don't get it. I'm going to try one more time to make it through these, but I'm afraid that this is just not for me. Um, I, I just... I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand why the characters are acting the way they do. And I really hate the art. And uh, I I just don't get it. And I was just looking at this sequence that made me laugh out loud. Which is from the trade that's called Assault on Weapon Plus. And there's a scene where um, Scott goes to the Hellfire Club and gets drunk. And um, the entertainment at the Hellfire Club is like this girl standing on a stage kind of doing a dance with a whip and it's really stupid <laughs> and I thought this is this is somebody's fantasy about what it might be like at a sex club right that there'd be a woman dressed up in leather and it's actually all wrong because she's dressed up like a dom and she's carrying this really giant whip and what she's saying to to Scott is uh oh and I know you're thinking, I know you're thinking about how good it is to just call the shots once in a while. So she's implying, I guess, that she would be the sub and he would be the dom, but she's not dressed like a sub, so it's totally backwards. And and it just made me think, like, I guess Grant Morrison hasn't actually been to a sex club or hasn't been to an S&M club because um, that would more involve people, you know, fucking each other or perhaps a guy getting getting it up the ass from a woman with a strap on or something like that. People, anyway, it's so stupid. It's like this is supposed to be the Hellfire Club, and this is it. Some some skinny woman with fake tits dancing with a whip. It's like no. Anyway, enough about that. Um, so here's the last thing. <laughs> Uh, so as you know, as I've said before, I'm really into um, the skeptical thing because it's important and because I'm an atheist and because I'm a feminist and all that. Um, I think it's important to take a skeptical view of pretty much everything. So um, there is a great organization called Skeptic and they have an online magazine. And uh, right now they have available their calendars and they did this last year and they're doing it again this year and last year was just women and, and this year it, there's a skeptic and a skept dude calendar and um, what it says right here two calendars two dozen critical thinkers in various states of undress so they're it's not like they're they're porn um, they're just uh, interesting beautiful photos of people and the whole point of the calendar as it was last year was to raise money for um, not skeptical research, but to help people involved in, in skepticism who don't have a lot of money. So I'll, I'll read what it says. Um, Last year, Skeptic used the proceeds from the sales of the calendars to send women to the amazing meeting, the largest annual skeptical conference. The women were chosen among those who declared both a need for help and an interest in promoting critical thinking. This year, we're taking it all a step further. Not only are we adding an all-male calendar, but we're going to use the proceeds to fund multiple scholarships 
given out to people with demonstrated need who have a big idea for furthering science and reason. Beginning in January, we'll accept applications, so start planning now. If you're interested in applying for a scholarship, we're going to need verification of your need. And then they go on to give some examples of what those big ideas might be. So if you've got a big idea, or if um, you're a woman and you would love to go to the amazing conference, which is held in Las Vegas, um, and I haven't gotten to go, but I'd love to go one day, you might want to check it out. And the calendars are going to be really good. Um, they cost $20 a piece, and it's, uh, you know, going for a good cause and all that. And um, did I mention I'm in it? Yeah. So you might want to buy it for that reason, too. I'll put up a link. You can pre-order this stuff now. Um, yeah, there you go. So uh, that's it for this time around. I really am going to try to make a concerted effort to get through some of this new X-Men stuff, but I might have to say bye to it the way I had to say bye to Ultimate Spider-Man. Um, and in the meantime, go watch Foster's, watch the Legion of Superheroes cartoon, which is pretty amusing. Hasn't quite found his feet yet, but I like it. And you know, Will Wheaton is the voice of Cosmic Boy. And um, I'll be back next time with even more fun stuff and kicking of ass. Aloha, honeyloo. This is your swinging hula girl on K-Poi. Waikiki's Golden. Out on an island in the middle of the sea, there's a swinging hula girl that waits for me. Her eyes are softer than the moonlight on the sand. I want to be her swinging hula man My swinging hula Acting like a fool Where did you go to school To learn to dance that way Your moves excite me I want you, I mean I need. Do you think I might be A hula man Pounding of the drums not far away Her father told me that I really shouldn't stay We said goodbye because they said our love was wrong We were two swingers, swinging right along My swinging hula, acting like a hula Where did you go to school to learn to dance that way? Your moves excite me, I want you, I mean nightly Do you think I might be a hula man someday? Yeah.